I'm Laura Marsh, a field biologist and avid conservationist. I know firsthand that finding wildlife work is tough. You're often underpaid, undervalued, and burnt out. These are the stories and interviews from people just like you to help find solutions to the systemic problems in our industry and bring more equity and justice to the rich diversity of life on our planet. We are shaking up the world of conservation through Nova Conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Nova Conversations. This is my intro for my interview with Lynn Mento, and I love this episode. I wish I released it two weeks ago, but I've been very um, struggling. I've been really struggling, honestly, with a lot of stuff. So um, I just wanted to do this introductory bit and share some things I've discovered about myself and about the way I operate. And um, yeah, I have tried my whole life to essentially please people around me. And I don't think I really knew how to listen or take care of myself. Um, I got married very young, as you guys know, if you listen to the first episode and my history. So I kind of feel like I was forced to be an adult when I was a kid. And then I had kids. Um, and then, you know, I'm a kid having kids. It's just like a bad, vicious cycle. But I was all pretending to be an adult, pretending to have it all together, pretending I knew what I was doing and what I wanted out of life. And I know my passion and my my call to conservation is deep. Um, but I didn't know how to use it in the best way. And I still don't. I mean, we're all trying to figure it out. None of us have it together. It's just the reality of life. And if you say you do, then you're lying. <laughs> you're lying. So I, I just don't believe that. So I, I want to be upfront and honest about where I am in my journey with Nova Conservation. Honestly, I really spent many days over the past couple of years, especially during the pandemic. Um, once my kids could go back to daycare and school and things, I would just chug coffee and work, 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 work. I didn't take care of my body. I wasn't taking care of um, my mental health. I just was trying to make up for, I was just trying to make up for the guilt I feel for bringing two children in this world and for existing in a space and a place that is so broken and where I see so much suffering around me. And I just used work as an excuse and a way to assuage my guilt of not doing more, I guess. I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. It's really hard to describe and it's still a fresh wound. So I don't know where I'm at with it exactly. But I do know that I have been working very hard trying to please people outside of me and not myself. So I want to solve all the world's problems I want to solve all the conservation problems and I've just realized I can't and I need to take care of myself so I'm, I'm taking some steps back for sure I am not shying away from hard dialogue because I enjoy getting deep I'm very emotionally in tune um, and this is an avenue where I feel like I can share that. Like I, I wanted this podcast to be like funny and lighthearted and stuff. And that's good. But really I think what people 
and I'm good at and what people need is to hear some empathy and compassion and that you're not alone when you're struggling with these things and in whatever way I can I want to provide that for people uh I just want to use my gifts in the most effective way possible and even my pain like this pain I feel for the world and my depression and my mental health and blah 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 I want it to be used for good and even that is like I have to redeem it I have to do work to redeem everything I do or else it's wasted it's pointless I don't know if I I don't think that's a healthy perspective either but that is where I'm at and I'm being honest so like I said I don't eat enough. I chug my coffee and then I feel guilty because my coffee is not always like shade grown, organic, sustainable, farmed, fair trade, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, And I'm like, I shouldn't even be drinking my coffee. I'm a burden to this planet. I'm a burden to everyone around me. Ooh, and that's a hard place to be. Thank you for listening. I just wanted to share my stuff a little bit. Um, I recently told someone like I want to solve every problem and they said oh that's because you're a white American I'm like I hear you but I don't know if I agree with you like I I, maybe that is a very American privileged thing to think that we can solve everything I don't know I, I don't know I have to chew on that one a bit more But I do know what I'm good at and I do know what I'm not good at. And I've realized I'm not good at asking people for money or making money. I'm just not money hungry. Um, Every single person I've talked to about running a business and trying to start Nova as an LLC, which I already have, but they're all like, you have to be okay with making money. You have to know how to charge what you're worth. You have to have a good relationship with money. Like you have to be okay to have money. And I'm like, I just never felt comfortable with that. I'm trying to grow in that, but it still is something I feel very uncomfortable with. Even if I know that I'd be making money and giving it to the right entities, it still just rubs me the wrong way and I cannot explain why. So I am not um, going to be going down that path probably much more and just be all about money. But instead, I'd like to foster some kind of dialogue and community around these topics. I'm listening to myself, not my inner critic. And that's the huge thing. Like, I am really trying to get out of my own way and see the purest form of me and not all the voices and the the polls and the dialogue in my head about what I should be doing and what needs to be done and what someone else expects from me or what someone else's problem is and solving that I am taking steps back I'm breathing and I'm listening to me uh it it also means I'm you know just again complete honesty like with all the problems of the world and and all the struggles in my own brain I'm trying to I'm, I'm taking more substances than usual, um, and I don't want there to be shame around it. I'm not addicted, but I do drink, and I do have hemp products. 
um, in the evenings. And that's been helping me cope when life just gets too much or too overwhelming. So I'm trying to not feel guilty or shame about that. And yeah, just really being okay to take care of yourself and find a safe place of respite wherever you can in this crazy mixed up world. Because you can't change it all, nor should you. But we can trust that society will grow and get better and improve. So um, I hope that this podcast provides some small measure of help and hope. And I will stop talking and get on with my conversation with Lynn Mento. She's amazing, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Oh, and one more thing regarding this episode. So Lynn Mento is a white woman who lives in D.C., and she is running Conservation Nation, an organization that's interested in bringing more diversity and equity and inclusion into the conservation industry, which is a huge, amazing goal for the world. And so I, um, I, I wanted to address like a, a devil's advocate point of view. So I emailed her. I didn't address this in the actual interview, so I'm going to say it up front. I said, you know, what would you say to people who would claim, oh, you're just a white woman with white savior complex trying to bring more diversity into an industry, but who are you to speak into that? And she answered, um, and I'll read this directly from the email. I see Conservation Nation as a platform. It's the amazing conservationists doing the work on the ground that are the true leaders of this organization and mission. I see myself just as a facilitator, an ally, and a critical platform provider. It's also worth noting we support female conservationists of all races. The barriers of access and resources hit hard on all women, particularly in countries where they tra- where they are traditionally marginalized. I just thought that was a really holistic and well versed point of view to bring into this conversation on the top end um, as we address issues of diversity and inclusion and equity because, you know, we can't do it all, again, (laughs) as you've heard in my intro today, but we can do what we can do. And if we're all working together and supporting each other instead of cutting each other down and um, pointing out critiques and criticism in an unhealthy way, then maybe we'll get to do more effective conservation work, inclusion work, justice work in the in the world instead of just pointing out where everyone else is failing, which tends to rub me the wrong way a little bit, as you can tell. Because especially with my personal mental health issues, when I hear about people failing, I tend to internalize it and turn me into the failure, and that does not do anything to help me. So um, let's be kind to each other and see each other's points of view and perspectives and support each other doing awesome, amazing work like Lynn is at Conservation Nation. And her whole team around her uh, is doing just awesome, justice-driven work to bring more funds and more inclusiveness into our career and our field, which is desperately needed. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Lynn Mento. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Nova Conversations podcast. My name is Laura Marsh, and I am hoarse right now from allergies. It's spring, and it's just awful to be outside, but I love it being outside, so I will suffer through it. And I'm here with Lynn Mento. Lynn is the director of Conservation Nation, and I'll let her introduce herself for a little bit. 
Oh, thank you, Laura. So yes, I, I run uh, Conservation Nation, which is a new organization, nonprofit in uh, Washington, D.C., that's dedicated to saving our planet by bringing a more diverse, inclusive, and representative core of wildlife conservationists to the fight. We're very excited about where we're going. How long have you been in existence? Because I I tell you, I, I've said this in another podcast, how I have wanted to start a nonprofit similar to what you're doing. And um, then all of a sudden I heard about you and I said, okay, great. This is, I'll just support you guys instead. Uh, <laughs> so how long has it been going on and what, what does it look like to run an organization like that? Yeah. So we officially launched in September. So we've been around about six, seven months, that kind of oh, thing. That's really new. Okay. Very new, very new. We arose from a six decade legacy as Friends of the National Zoo, which was a nonprofit organization in DC dedicated to the support of the Smithsonian's National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute. And I ran that organization, but we were not able to make it through the pandemic with the zoo, with the closures. And so we uh, really made lemonade out of the lemons and the team and I were able to focus on an area of our work that we had such a passion and spark to and that we saw the need growing significantly. And that's really around this idea of supporting wildlife conservationists in the field who are from traditionally underrepresented groups. So we're saying, you go, here's some funding, we'll support your work, and then asking them to be role models with us for the next generation so that we're inspiring the future pipeline of diverse, inclusive conservationists. So we took that as our focus. It's Conservation Nation. And we had been doing work uh, providing grants as Conservation Nation for about five years under Friends of the National Zoo. So we took that legacy and experience of uh, grant providing and moved that over. And um, so since our launch, we have provided, you know, 13 grants to these fantastic wildlife conservationists. And we've stood up our pilot education program and done a ton of work. And we're very excited, Laura. Wow. 13 grants. Okay. And you just started in September, but yes, there's that history with the Smithsonian yeah. Friends of the National Zoo. So when you say supporting biologists from tra traditionally underrepresented backgrounds, what does that look like to you? Mm -hmm. that means? So when we started, when we, so we, you know, we made the decision that we needed to pivot for the sake of the planet in the spring of all of these COVID years. So it was 21. Yeah. Spring of, <laughs> spring of 21. <laughs> And um, we did some research. We had the opportunity to work with McKinsey Consulting on a pro bono basis um, because our chair of the board runs McKinsey's DC office. So we got some terrific strategic counsel. And then we did research among conservationists and said, what, what are the issues? What are the barriers? What do you need? And it was that research that led us to the identification of where we wanted to go. And when you look at these traditionally underrepresented groups, it was clear, it's clear when you look at the field, and it was certainly clear when we look at our research that women, even starting as girls, people of color, indigenous people, and those from disadvantaged backgrounds were coming up against these enormous hurdles to become a wildlife conservationist. And everybody, regardless of their level of access and privilege, faces hurdles um, in this field. We know how competitive it is. But for these groups, these critical groups, they simply didn't have the privilege and the access and the connections and the resources to jump over these hurdles, whereas others have been able to. 
And so what's been happening is that as this existential crisis is growing for our planet and biodiversity loss is just becoming an issue that is as critical, if not more, as climate change, the percentage of people, at least from our country, who can afford to become wildlife conservationists is shrinking and shrinking. So we did this research and 80% of the wildlife conservationists in our survey worked for free, right? So they were either volunteering for free or interning for free. So they had this ability, they had to have this ability to work for free. Almost half of them worked for free for over a year. That is a long time to work for free. You need privilege and access and resources in order to do that. And um, if you were a woman or a person of color, you are more likely to have worked for free and you are more likely to have worked for free longer. So these barriers are hitting them even harder. And, um, you know, almost three quarters of those people who, um, who face these barriers had to take on a second job. And it's ridiculous that you have this profession, you are in a profession that this nation needs, this world needs almost more than any other profession. And yet you're getting paid like this, even if you can make it past these hurdles. And then in order to survive, you have to take on a second job. And, you know, one of the um, inspirations for us was meeting a young black conservationist, Taylor Bland out at Yellowstone. And she was volunteering at the Yellowstone Wolf Project, which is an amazing organization, if you're familiar with them. Um, but she was volunteering. They didn't have the budget for a paying job for her. It was her passion. And she was working a paying job in order to pay the bills. And uh, so she was working sunup to sundown, seven days a week. Her fiance, Jack, considered himself one of the lucky ones because his mom, who was a hairdresser, was able to work evenings to give Jack the money that he needed to pay to have a free internship. And so that Jack was able to break in that way. And so, you know, we had these conversations with Taylor and it was almost heartbreaking. And one, one of the things that I am most proud of in our seven months or eight months or of being in existence is that we were able to, through the support of some amazing people, including people, amazing people at the Yellowstone Wolf Project, we were able to make Taylor a, um, give her funding for a paid position. Oh, at the Yellowstone Wolf Project. Ah, it's so great, right? So she's our first Conservation Nation fellow. Uh, and we're the, the Yellowstone Wolf Project is thrilled. Yellowstone Forever is thrilled. Taylor's thrilled. We're thrilled. I mean, it's such a win-win. You know, you just, it's crazy that there are these people with talent and passion and the, the land has need, in this case, the wolves have need, and there simply isn't the money. There's something very broken in the system, you know? So we've said the system is broken. And we are small and new, but we are going to do our part to help try to fix the system and break these long-standing systemic barriers. That's so good. Um, I've been talking about that a lot. Like the system mm. is broken because yeah. what I've encountered a lot of lately is um, feeling like it's pitting conservationists against conservationists. For example, in the case with Taylor, um, you know, she could have said, um, to the nonprofits, like, hey, you need to pay better. And this is so unfair. And it is like, it just is. Mm -hmm. But nonprofits, the way we, they're organized, the way they get their funding, just, that's right. It's, it, they, they don't have money. I've talked to so many leaders of nonprofits and workers um, from research organizations, and they don't have the funds to even pay themselves. Sometimes right. they're 
the directors of organizations are getting external funds, not from the nonprofit itself. So it's just this vicious cycle. And um, by calling out organizations, it might hinder progress. Um, but the system is the one that's <laughs> the exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And everyone that I have talked to, just as you said, Laura, every leader of a nonprofit in ENGO that I've talked to absolutely wants to bring on more conservationists, wants to bring on young conservationists, wants more diversity, equity, and inclusion in their work. 201, everyone wants it. And yet, as you point out, the system requires sort of, you know, begging hand to hand among people and funders. Oh, please, won't you support us? Please, won't you support us? And it's crazy. You know what drives me bonkers, Laura? Like you look at the, you look at the defense ecosystem, which is for protection. One would argue protection of our country and the world, and the billions and billions and billions of funding that goes into that. That doesn't rely on hand to hand going and begging. And yet we are sitting here facing a far larger threat to our country and our planet. And Where's the funding for that? Why, why do we have to be begging and scraping in order to bring people in and pay them a reasonable wage for their work to help save the planet? It makes mm-hmm. no sense to me, you know? I mean, you know, in my vision, and I, you know, if I were queen for the day sort of thing, I, we would be getting these defense contractors, the defense ecosystem to be providing funding for this, you know, picture, picture the 1%, picture whatever it is coming off their funding. And it goes towards this threat. It's just crazy, isn't it? I mean, even like you said, in a um, a former interview, even if all of the corporations um, in the world just gave 1%, maybe even less than 1%. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. A hundredth of a percent, right? Of their profit. (laughs) I know. easy and yet it and yet it's not happening it's it's a broken system it's not it's not the people it's not the organizations it is a system it's a systemic problem that requires a systemic solution right and actually when you're talking about defense spending and military and things like that um i just had a conversation this past weekend i was at the spring wildflower pilgrimage so i'm not sure when this particular recording will be released but right now it's um, early May. And uh, so I was at the, in the Great Smoky Mountains and we, just talking with people who are there who will pay to support the work that the Smoky Mountains does, pay to learn about yeah. hikes, pay to see the birds and the nature and the, uh, the yeah. re- really yeah. unique endemic species that the Smokies has. And we've, we were talking about capitalism and the defense spending budget. If we yeah. could somehow um, convince the government and the powers that be that mm-hmm. conservation needs are a defense need. Exactly. If we can exactly. convince them that this is um, again, like a minister of the future kind of um, mentality where we are protecting our future investments, we're protecting our ecosystem service we're, services, we're protecting yes. our biodiversity. And that is a, defense um need for that's right country um but yes the whole world but if we can convince the the military that it's in mm-hmm. their best interests mm-hmm. which it of, is of course of course yeah. it is i love your minister for the future i love that <laughs> have you heard that phrase before no but i love it <laughs> it's not my phrase um i think it was originated by um i want to say kurt vonnegut but then someone else was oh. talking about the book um 
written by someone, something Robbins, Kim, something Robinson or Robbins called the minister of the future and Great. recommended. And I said, I'm going to read that next. Like it's next on my list to read. So lots of, um, lots of thought provoking things here because yeah. it's, it, it is a systemic problem. It is yeah, not it is. an easy solution. It's not as simple as, Oh, just pay people better. That's right. Where does the money come from? You can't, exactly. you can't like get it from thin air. Exactly. <laughs> it has exactly. to come from somewhere. So in your um, work with Conservation Nation, even before Friends of the National Zoo, where do you think the best source of the funding could come from? Where is low hanging fruit potentially um, to get this, these funds? I think it's definitely corporations. Yeah. So I think that they're behemoths. I'm not talking about, you know, the mom and pop down the street. I'm talking about these enormous corporations that in some ways keep our country running and the world running. And, um, and they have the resources, the net profits, the desire, the incentive. It's in their best interest, of course, that um, the planet is saved and, and biodiversity thrives and we're left with the planet that can continue to buy their products and services. Uh, so I think it's absolutely there. And I, and I think the question is, and of, and, and of course the federal government, um, and I think the question on the corporation side is how it's positioned in a way and to whom to start so that it takes off. So it would need to be, you'd need to get a handful of key folks representing these corporations who will sign on to a pledge, right? They're doing something. They're coming together and doing something. And then in so doing, they're starting to funnel funds into conservation. They are getting the ability to promote what they're doing. These conservationists can be named for them, right? It could be the suite of Amazon wildlife conservationists, right? Or Google conservationists who are out in the world. Um, uh, and and then it becomes a win-win. And as they come in, then the ecosystem can broaden and their suppliers and friends and partners can come in and so on and so on and so on. So you get a really meaningful mass. So it means starting finding a couple big guys, influential big guys, not that I know them, but finding a couple influential big guys and, and starting it. So one of the things that we're doing at Conservation Nation is convening ENGOs and philanthropic funders around how to fix things. So we just kicked off a roundtable last week around um, sort of how do we create a more diverse, inclusive, and representative core of conservationists. And we're starting with kind of, you know, exist starting where we are today, right? Picking up where we are today, but we will eventually start talking about these larger issues. How do you, how do we, you know, what's the moonshot on this for changing the system? for breaking these barriers in a way that's so big and so powerful and so sustainable that we have found a solution to this particular problem that's threatening us. We need a solution. We need many solutions, but it's so encouraging to hear that you're doing that work. And the round table was with ENGOs, which are environmental NGOs. And then who else did you say? What yeah, some terrific environmental philanthropic funders. So if you're familiar with the Lumina Foundation and walmart.org, Blue Sky Funders, and the Wild Lives Foundation, Jody Allen's organization. Okay. And how do you, um, I'm just kind of curious about this, uh, the term greenwashing, how do you, you know, combat 
saying that like an Amazon, a big corporation or a Walmart is going to give this money. And then, you know, there are pockets of people who would say, oh, that's just greenwashing. They're just doing the bare minimum to help our environment. Um, I'm curious to know your thoughts on that because yes, they are giving funding and that's very important. Um, but yet what large corporations are doing is still um, problematic in many ways. So is it greenwashing? Is it not? Is it uh, something different? How do we, how should we be looking at that? Mm -hmm. And it's very complicated, isn't it? Because you could argue that the harm, I'll just take Amazon, the harm that Amazon is doing to the planet with the deliveries and to say nothing of the justice of the workforce and, you know, so, so, so many issues, right? So yes, buckets of issues over here, but at the same time, right now, to the best of my knowledge, they are funding zero wildlife conservationists. So if we can chip away at them to get them to start funding a core of wildlife conservationists while they continue to do these things they're doing, that is at least some progress, some step in the right direction. And there, it, I, I, Conservation Nation cannot tackle all these other issues that are happening. And thank God there are people who are and talking with them about this impact that they're having and trying to work through it. So I am just biting off the piece that I can bite off, which is, will you fund a core of wildlife conservationists helping to save biodiversity and the planet? And, um, and, and, you know, if they will do that, that is an amazing thing. And then this can continue to be worked on separately, you know, cause I don't think Laura, we have the luxury at this point in the trajectory of where the planet is to stand on a, a moral high ground that's crumbling underneath our feet. So we, um, there's such an urgency to it that I think we have to find our wins and take our wins wherever we can and help support others who are trying to find their wins and biting off their pieces, you know? That's what I think. Yeah, that's such a good point. You take you take what you can get. I had a conversation with my friend Rose Santana and she was saying how, you know, if, if BP chooses to fund my research project, someone might say, oh, don't take the money, don't take the money because it's BP. And we're over here saying, well, no, we'll take the money. <laughs> I mean, give, give us the money, please help redistribute the wealth. I and, agree. I agree completely. That's what we can do. So yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's a touchy topic, but it's mm -hmm. good to add to all of that. Mm -hmm. So um, getting back to underrepresented groups in mm -hmm. conservation science, I know why I think it's important to have them and their voices mm -hmm. in uh, career conservation and perspectives and everything like that. But from your point of view, mm -hmm. what drives you to do this work? What drives you to bring the funds in to help overcome the barriers because it is there are so many things that go into it mm -hmm. and so what what keeps you going um, mm -hmm. why is this so important to you mm -hmm. personally but to the world as well mm -hmm. i believe very strongly that the only way to win this fight against biodiversity loss is to have every smart voice and every smart solution at the table because clearly we need so much more than we have right now. We need more people, we need more solutions, we need more perspectives, we need more ideas, we need more connections. And when you think of this funnel of the most privileged 
to the most underrepresented trying to get into um, the conservation field to help join the fight, and you look at our country, by 2030, over 80% of our country will be women and people of color. And you think about how can you possibly have every smart voice and every smart solution at the table if this funnel is so small with privilege and access and resources that these folks, all of us cannot get into that. And so the first point is that we need more. And the only way we're going to get more is if we broaden that funnel. And the second point is that the diversity of voices and perspectives, I believe is hugely important to solving the challenge. And it's certainly been proven. You know, there's this great quote, and I don't know who said it, but um, smart people do not make a smart group. Have you ever heard that quote? I can't remember who said it, but. No, I've um, never heard that. It's what true, that isn't it? Individual smart people together are, are, that's saying individually smart people, when you put them together, aren't as smart? Nope, but it doesn't make a smart group. So if we take everybody who has the same perspective, the same background, the same belief system, the same way of growing up, the same way of looking at the world, and they're all individually smart, and we put them together as a group to solve a problem, they will intuitively by nature see the problem and the solutions through that one lens. Right. This homogeneous group will see it through that one lens. So what it requires for a truly smart group, creating breakthrough solutions requires different perspectives, different backgrounds, different ways of looking at the world, different ways of turning the prism on a problem that I would not think, you would bring something that I would not have thought of, my neighbor would bring something I had not thought of. And um, so it requires this diversity of thoughts and perspectives. And again, the only way to get that is by broadening the funnel so that a greater diversity of people, more representation can come into this field. So those are the two big reasons. And I believe those are the only two ways that we're going to solve this biodiversity crisis. That's, that's so poignant. Um, I had this thought, it was probably a year ago now, and I thought it was a unique thought. I had the thought of, you know, oh, we are protecting biodiversity and all of the different species out in the world, and we're doing our best to protect that. But in conservation, we're not promoting diversity within our mm-hmm. um, career. And, you know, comparing, mm-hmm. like, we want biodiversity, but yet we're not experiencing that in our, mm-hmm. it's just very homogeneous. It's like a mm-hmm. monoculture in mm-hmm. career conservationists. It's very privileged, generally mm-hmm. white. So, mm-hmm. and I, I added that to my TED talk and I thought this is, you know, was such a poignant um, um, bridge between biodiversity and people, diverse and yeah. people. Yeah. And yeah. then I heard you talking about it and I said, oh, okay, well, I thought it was this unique idea. And <laughs> the fact that we're all, all getting it t- together. That's right. Is That's so right. It's like, okay, I'm not the only one who feels this strongly. Like, as soon That's as right. we, definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as we started talking um, and we met up, and actually, this is a kind of a funny story that I'll mention. Um, you reached out to me um, back in July of 2021, I think. And I remember I was in a, the airport terminal and I got the email on my phone. And I thought it was, I, uh, this is imposter syndrome, but I thought, there's no way this is real. Uh, someone who's organ, who's the director of Conservation Nation is trying to reach out to me. And I hadn't, I didn't know about Conservation Nation really. I looked into it and then I kind of put it out of my mind thinking they don't want to talk to me like that. This has got to be a mistake, right? <laughs> 
Nope. <laughs> That's, I, and so then finally we reconnected and you said, yep, I tried to reach out to you in July and um, didn't hear anything back. And I said, that was my imposter syndrome right there. <laughs> um, I, that's so interesting because yeah, as soon as we met up, we were like, yes, we have so much in common. Let's, let's join forces. Let's try to figure this thing out together. So I'm just really encouraged by the work you're doing. And I had wish I had followed up on that email sooner, but now I'm just glad I, we connected. I know. now all I can do is just um, share about the work you're doing and just try to help and support as much as possible because it is so, so encouraging to hear. So what, how is Conservation Nation trying to address these problems? If I'm Mm -hmm. remembering correctly, you have three main pillars. Mm -hmm. What are Mm -hmm. those pillars? Yep, so the first is funding. So we are providing funding to conservationists from these traditionally underrepresented groups. So the ones who have made it through the funnel or are doing their damnedest to get through that funnel. And we are giving them support, financial support, networking support, operational support to boost them, to help them, to say, you go. This is funding for wildlife saving work that you're doing in the forms of grants. This is a fellowship, that sort of thing. And connecting them with each other, connecting the emerging conservationists from underrepresented groups with established conservationists from underrepresented groups so that we're creating this um, additional mentoring and pathway opportunities and work opportunities. So that's the first pillar around grants, funding, and then, and then connecting them together. The second pillar is around um, education and inspiration. So we're supporting the wildlife saving work being done today. But what we need as well is the wildlife saving work being done tomorrow. We need um, to have a uh, pipeline or pathways for diverse, inclusive, representative, young conservationists to get into the field so that we've got this virtuous cycle going. So it's not just today, it's also tomorrow. And so we're doing education and inspiration to help children, youth from traditionally underserved communities to see themselves as wildlife champions, all the way up to pursuing a STEM academic and career path into conservation. And so we started that uh, just recently, a pilot in Washington, DC. We're working with two amazing schools, two tuition-free independent schools that focus on children from underserved communities. There are two middle schools in this pilot today, and we're going in there with the science teachers once a week and running through the Conservation Nation Academy, which is our curriculum to inspire, build confidence, open eyes for these kids that they can be wildlife champions. They have every right to be in nature. They have every right to think about this as a career choice from them. We're bringing in through video our conservationists and Taylor Bland and others so that they can see them and see role models, people who have walked past like them and have made it into the field. So we're doing that right now um, in these two pilot middle schools. And we're hoping to have a relationship with DC public schools starting this school year coming up. And our ultimate goal, if we can get funding, is to roll uh, this program out nationally, potentially even globally. So that's our second pillar. Yeah, super excited about it. And then our third pillar is really around convening. So acting as um, just a a force for good, uh, pulling together these large NGOs, these funders, uh, like-minded leaders who want to be making a difference and um, just acting as a helpful convener. So those are our three pillars. You ever, sometimes when I talk to people who want to get in conservation and want to work in wildlife, 
I some I hesitate a bit because I know how underfunded it is. And I I want to tell them, pursue your passion, pursue your dream, mm-hmm. do all mm-hmm. of the things. And yet there's a, a bit of hesitancy because I know the job market is really, really tough. And I know yeah. you're going to have to be working for free for a few years in order to get a foot in the door. I don't like that's the way it is, that it's the yeah. way it is, but that's the way it is. And so when you encourage young people to be wildlife champions and potentially get a career in biological conservation, is there a part of you that um, has that, that uh, I would have this fear of like, well, I also want you to have marketable skills because career mm-hmm. in conservation mm-hmm. doesn't pay a lot. So how mm-hmm. do you, how do you um, handle that trade-off essentially? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. So as we're talking with these kids, we know that 99.5% of any, the odds are that any child will not go into wildlife conservation, right? They will take their, they will find a different career path for themselves. And so what we want is for these kids to take this wildlife champion mentality wherever they go. So you could be a hairdresser and not buy palm oil products. You could go into solar panel or engineering. You could, wherever you go, you could uh, run a law firm and decide that you were going to give pro bono support to environmental justice, whatever it is, right? You, wherever you go in your career, you can take this wildlife champion mindset. So we know that that's going to be the case for 99% of the kids that we're talking to. And then the second part is uh, hope. So we have right now, these middle schoolers are young and we have some time to try to fix the system. So my hope is that as we all work together, we will be able to make enough changes to the system and these systemic barriers that could be holding these kids back that by the time they are in college, these barriers have been chipped away and there is significantly more opportunity for them. So that's my my hope. My hope is in that runway, we'll be able to make some meaningful progress. Do you think, um, I'm getting kind of deep here, talking about the, the huge systems at play. Do you think um, capitalism is um, a, a main problem of this system? Because the way I see it a lot of times is that um, wildlife and conservation work doesn't have a value in our global marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We live in a capitalistic society and people want products and, and services for what they pay for. And if we could shift the value system of America um, or the world, but let's start with America um, to value things that don't provide a good or a service, how, how much different that would be. So I'm, I'm, this goes to a different question I was going to ask also, which is I want to solve all the world's problems. And that includes maybe destroying capitalism a little bit, but I know I, I, you know, we can't do that. I can't do that single-handedly. But it, it leads to this interesting topic of what we value as a society and how do we change that and how do we shift that so that conservation can get more funding. People do value nature and the outdoors over Kardashians and malls of America and um, Mm -hmm. fashion. Uh, So yes, what are your thoughts on capitalism and how the the intersection, we talked about a little bit with corporations, but how, how that intersects with the diversity and the barrier issues. Mm-hmm. It's a huge problem. 
and it's also a huge opportunity. So I think I admire the progress that is being made by other organizations and other people in placing a value. And it's not so crass that you have to, but as you said, you do, right? Placing a value today on the impact of climate change and biodiversity loss to corporations and governments. And it, it is, of course, huge. And, and we see that. And I believe that eyes are being open to that, that there is, in fact, a financial value, an enormous financial value to saving the planet. It sounds ludicrous to even say it, but you know what I mean? That this um, midterm view, it, you that, that I think eyes are being opened in the corporate world, certainly, and certainly in the, the federal system and the state system on this and what it means to them. Um, and I think the, therein lies the opportunity that they are sitting on, as we said before, wealth beyond wealth, right? And they are sitting on this. And if they, if they begin to realize that they need to invest, just as they are investing in other things, they need to invest in the stability of their supplier base, their products, their raw products and ingredients, and their customer base, that all of those things will be gone if we are not fixing, if we're not working to save the planet, all of those are going to be at enormous jeopardy to say nothing of their own employees and stability and all the rest of it. And if we can convince them that um, they need to invest in this work in order to save the planet so that all these components of their success can continue, that's the play to me totally get how great it would be if we could shift mindsets away from, you know, you said shifting away from capitalism, all the rest, wouldn't that be wonderful? Um, but, but I think where we really need to focus is on let's, let's embrace capitalism and say, okay, is that the lens? That is the lens. We know that's the lens that's important to you. Here's the value. Here's the threat. Here's the investment that's required in order to mitigate those risks. And these corporations do that all the time, evaluating different threats and risk mitigation. And this is one of them. And this is what you need to invest. And this is how you should be investing it. And they are investing in nature, preservation of nature, which will then allow them, their ingredients, their suppliers, their partners, all of that to survive, their customers <laughs> survive. There is such a huge customer demand in the younger generation. Mm -hmm. I'm a millennial and the Gen Z generation is demanding that organizations be held accountable, is demanding yeah. that their products and their goods and their services are coming from businesses that care. So yeah. it's, it's like you're sitting on this egg of a golden egg of opportunity to yeah. really start to invest now in what the next generation of consumers are going to care about and how right. I've already started caring about. So that's it, right. Yeah, that's a, that's right. And as, and as younger generations start taking over corporations, things will be better. That will, that will be for the good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That gives me hope. Mm -hmm. When I think about, you know, the political systems that are trying to mm -hmm. uh, just negate or um, antagonize us mm -hmm. away from shifting to a more environmental mindset. Mm -hmm. It's discouraging. Mm -hmm. And, um, but mm -hmm. no, but there's hope. There's hope. Yeah, there's hope. Definitely. So with that said, um, how do you um, focus on one or two problems to solve 
instead of all of them. <laughs> this is something we talked about a little bit before the interview, how there are just so many problems to solve. Um, mm. And I want to, I personally can't solve all of them. You can't, mm. but if we put our minds together and we do our, our, um, our, we not stay in our lane. Cause that sounds like stay in your lane. But mm-hmm. like, if we just mm-hmm. focus on what mm-hmm. little small chunks that we are supposed to focus on, then we can come together and create something beautiful. But when I think about the big picture, I think mm-hmm. about all the problems that need solving. And then mm-hmm. my mind tends to get overwhelmed and mm-hmm. want to do mm-hmm. it all. So as a, as an organization, the director of an organization that's trying to solve a lot of these systemic problems, how do you not get overwhelmed? How do you not, um, how do you just focus on what you can do? Or if you hear a critique, uh, how do you channel it? So mm-hmm. you know that you're doing the best at the end of the day, you're doing your best work and you can lay your head on your pillow and say, mm-hmm. Hey, I've done what I can do and I can't mm-hmm. solve everything over here, but mm-hmm. I can't do this. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. It's so hard, isn't it? And and I'm sure I speak for my team. It's hard to, it is hard to lay your pillow, your head down on the pillow at the end of the night and feel like you've done everything you possibly could. I think we all have that, right? We all, at least those of us in the nonprofit field, I think we all feel that way. You know, there's so much more that we could be doing and look at the size of that need and all, and to your point, all these peripheral needs, it's this huge spider web of needs, right? And how do you figure out where you want to focus? And so for us at Conservation Nation, we stay true, we try to stay true to focusing on our piece of the solution in this big, big challenge, right? And our piece of the solution is let's figure out how to break barriers to bring a more diverse, representative, and inclusive core of conservationists to the fight. So that's our sort of our North Star for saving wildlife, our piece of this enormous challenge, right? And we've said we're going to do that by providing funding to role model conservationists educating and inspiring a more diverse next generation and bringing together convening. So there are larger solutions that can be developed together. And so if we, we try to stay true to that, to your point, you know, you get a phone call, you read an article, you, you know, right. And it's so easy to worry about what you're not able to do. I don't have a good answer for that other than, um, we try to stay focused on what we're doing and, and find our wins right within our, lane or our, our, our section of that, our slice of that challenge and our slice of the solution. Yep. I can sometimes feel like I'm not doing enough, but sure. I remember if I can focus on the little bits that I am doing and yeah, do that well. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and give yourself a pat on the back. Take, take your wins every day. Yes. Yes. It's good. And that is, that goes up again to like some mental health stuff and um, yeah. remembering yeah. the good that is in you, the remembering That's right. what you have done that is, has That's been right. successful um, instead right. of focusing on the negatives of all the things that are going on. That's right. Um, That's right. Cause we need you, right? Yeah. The world needs you. So yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I do have one more question. I'm going to um, probably wrap it up here soon and I'll let you, Talk about some other things that if you have anything else you want to mention before we wrap up. Um, But so going to the way nonprofits are run, because so many of them are begging for the scraps Mm -hmm. of grants, which is so unsustainable and hard to get 
I mean, I just applied for a huge grant and I worked my tail off, you know, with this application and the odds of me getting that are realistically slim to none, but um, it still is, um, you know, you want to be hopeful and you want to keep pursuing that. So great. I mean, nonprofits write grants all the time um, and many of them are not funded. And even if they are, they then have to follow up. So it's almost like you have to have a whole team mm-hmm. of staff to be able to fund or to be able to take advantage of mm-hmm. the money that can come from grants. Mm-hmm. So that's one way nonprofits get money. Mm-hmm. The other way is you know, don- donations and fundraisers and um, having sat on the board for uh, our local Audubon Society, that's very, very challenging too, to go mm-hmm. ask people, mm-hmm. corporations for money. And that's what nonprofits are run off of, grants mm-hmm. and private, mm-hmm. private donations. Do you think the nonprofit model needs um, to be reevaluated? And if so, what can we do to help nonprofits be more secure in their funding? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is hard, isn't it? So it, in some ways, it goes back to this idea that the, the broken system and that as opposed to each nonprofit going out with their, their bowl or begging bowl, it should be there is some, some group, some force from the corporate world that has come together and said, we are going to support this work. This is our commitment. Our pledge is this percentage of our profits. And you've heard of the 1% for the planet, of course. And that's a model like that. I think we need something um, like that dedicated to wildlife conservation, but also something more formalized, something that is a, a true pledge, a business imperative. It needs to become a business imperative for them to back to our conversation about capitalism, right? And then they sign on to this. And that could help break that nonprofit begging bowl model, which would be fantastic. Um, and, and, you know, we talk about corporations and they're critical. And of course, there are also these amazing people with billions and giving out billions and then thank goodness for them. Fantastic. Right. And it would be terrific if um, we could get one or several of them to sign on to a biodiversity challenge that they will give a certain percent or match a certain percent, but big, right. We're talking big, meaningful. And then that funding can go to um, the organizations that are making an impact. So I'm not talking about a um, Mackenzie Scott giving 10 million to Park Service, which is an amazing organization. I'm talking about Mackenzie Scott giving this um, huge amount of money to a to the to the cause of wildlife conservation which could then be doled out to a variety of groups that have been stitched together to work on the biodiversity challenge. So I think that that working together, that convening is another, when you talk about what's broken in the NGO world, that is a piece that's a little broken in the NGO world that the um, organizations tend to compete for money from donors when in fact should be coming together, convening and figuring out how that money can be best spent to the end of the collective mission. So it, all the all those things would be great if we can pull it off. Right. <laughs> In an ideal world. Yeah, exactly. And, then, and to expound upon that as well, you need to hold the nonprofits or ENGOs accountable 
that they are paying their employees a fair wage. Yeah, that's right. Paying their that's directors right. and they're paying the techs, the field technicians, and they're not treating right. the volunteers like scum. If you know they come out and they're not overworking their interns, um, and that they are setting good standards for diversity, equity, inclusion, and yeah. justice yeah. in the yeah. future of the nonprofit, because not all nonprofits are created equal. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot to be said about how nonprofits can work together um, mm-hmm. instead of competing mm-hmm. with each other, mm-hmm. work together towards mm-hmm. these common goals of mm-hmm. making conservation better for all. So mm-hmm. I'm so encouraged that you and Conservation Nation are doing that work. And I hope, <laughs> I hope that more nonprofits come up and um, work together and you find lots more money to be able to continue yeah. this work. Um, yeah, we don't really actually need more nonprofits. That's one of the reasons I thought about starting a nonprofit. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a business, which then funnels money into, um, into supporting the work that other nonprofits are doing. Um, so thank you for doing this work. I don't don't know if you hear that enough, but it it is really meaningful. Um, thanks for fighting that fight for us, for all of the the low paid and um, underrepresented conservationists out there. We see you. We see you. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, Lynn, is there anything else you want to talk about or mention or add on that expand upon that you haven't yet said? Any final um, words of wisdom? <laughs> no, not really, but I would love it if anybody um, goes to conservationnation.org and Feel free to reach out with any thoughts or ideas. You can get us at info at conservationnation.org or you can reach me directly at lynn at conservationnation.org. So always love ideas, thoughts, perspectives, connections, anything, right? To help our cause, as you just said, right? We're all in this together. Yeah, yes, that's so good. And I heard um, in the previous um, interview where I initially heard about you, you said that you are not a conservationist by trade or a scientist by trade, but love talking to passionate conservationists. Yeah. And I think that's so fun. So that, that really did lower the barrier of me contacting you again and, and <laughs> saying, okay, okay. You really do want to talk to passionate conservationists. Yeah, and we really do. so thank you for, thanks for reaching out and talking and Thank you for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Your voice and your perspective is essential. And um, so are all of the underrepresented groups and um, everyone who can't get their voice on a podcast, maybe. So thank you for speaking for them. It means a lot. Thank you, Laura. It was such a pleasure talking with you. Same. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. And remember... Ethical conservation needs and deserves funds so that passionate people like you can get paid what they're worth. There's enough money to go around. Let's go get it and use it for the good of our planet.